Well, good morning. Again, for, for many of you, it's a, it's a privilege, really, to be able to come and worship with you this morning. One of the things I love about the Lord's Church is that no matter where you go, you have family. And as we come together this morning, uh, it, it's wonderful. I, I see Billy sitting over here, didn't have the faintest idea she was going to be here. I walk in and say, I know that face. That's, that's the family that we have as far as the, the church uh, is concerned. And as we come together this morning, we do so with the privilege of being able to come directly into the presence of our, of our God, of our Father and offer up these songs of praise to him to remember through faith the death of Jesus on the cross and to be able to participate in a wonderful time of fellowship as brothers and sisters. I want to thank uh, the elders of this congregation uh, and also, Mark, for allowing me to uh, fill the pulpit uh, this morning. I know for preachers, it's a hard thing when you're having to give up a pulpit. I've been a minister for 33 years in the Lord's Church, and one thing I like to do is preach. And while it's always a treat to be able to sit and listen to others who have given their lives to the Lord in, in study and in teaching, Within about the first 10 minutes or so, you're thinking, I, I should still be up there uh, <laughs> preaching. And so I, I thank you for allowing me to uh, take this time to share some thoughts from God's Word uh, with you this morning. You know, I first met Mark a little more than a month ago. I was in this particular area and visiting some congregations uh, in southern Indiana and also uh, in the Louisville uh, area. And I drive a, a Saturn view, which is, may not be the greatest looking vehicle, but it runs and it gets me from one place to the other. Uh, and of course, we've been experiencing some very hot weather, um, and the air conditioner on the Saturn went out. Uh, it doesn't work. And so as I'm driving around, uh, I have the old-fashioned air conditioning system. You just put your windows down and you drive and you hope to stay cool that way. And so late in the afternoon, uh, was on a Tuesday afternoon around the 13th, I believe, in August, I was wondering, well, I wonder if I could just make a couple more stops before I have to call it a day. And it was pretty late in the afternoon, but I came by the station here, the building here, and Mark was here. And so I had a chance to meet him for the first time, and it was a thrill for me to do that. Number one, it got me out of the hot vehicle, an office that was air-conditioned, and then he was nice enough to invite me in, and we were able to sit in his office and talk for several minutes about World Bible School, and he was familiar with that, and we had a very enjoyable uh, conversation uh, together. And uh, as I was explaining a little bit more about World Bible School, and since he was already somewhat familiar with um, I just left some information, and he was going to share that with the elders, and uh, I'm thankful that it's worked out that we can be together this morning. I want to share some thoughts with you from 2 Kings 
chapter 5, looking at the story of Naaman. And as we go into this uh, particular lesson this morning, I want you to think to yourself about greatness. Each and every one of us desire in some way to be great. We want to make an impact on the world. And so even as a child growing up, we always have these dreams or these visions of grandeur, of being able to do something that's just outstanding, that's great, that everyone is going to notice, and they're going to lift us up, and they're going to hold us up, and they're going to uh, kind of celebrate our existence because of some things that we've been able to do. And we know people in our own lifetime that have been able to achieve a stature of greatness for various things in life, whether it be through the medical field or whether it be through athletics or whatever it happens to be. Greatness can come in many different ways. But one of the things that we learn and one of the lessons we're going to see this morning as we look into this account about Naaman is the fact that no matter what greatness we might be able to attain to, as far as life upon this earth is concerned, if God is not involved in our life, then we really are nothing. And so this morning, we're looking at the subject of Naaman encounters true greatness. Our oldest son is a Marine. And I remember some years ago when he first came to me and his mother and said that he wanted to join the Marines. And I looked upon him as if he was crazy didn't have the faintest idea what in the world made him come to that type of a decision that he'd want to give his life to that. But after talking to him and thinking about it, he was old enough and I said, well, this is what I think, but it's your decision. Whatever you determine to do, you're going to have to give it your best and do it well. And he has done well. Now as the Marines enter in to boot camp, and they spend a number of weeks in this particular portion of their training and of their service, they get to that particular point when they're just about to come to the graduating stage of boot camp, and they have one major event that's going to determine whether they graduate or not. And it's called the crucible. And it takes about two days to do. And all of your platoon is going to be involved in this. And what they don't tell you 
at the beginning is that you may start at the bottom of this hill and it's in full pack and they're going to make this as difficult as they possibly can. And whatever they give you to carry, you've got to carry all of that to the top of this hill. And then they're going to tell you, everybody that's in your company, by the time you get done, better be at the top of that hill. Because if one person doesn't make it, nobody graduates. So you may be the fastest up that hill, and you may turn around and see others stumbling and falling and tripping and doing all of these other things trying to get up the hill. But if you want to graduate... It's your responsibility to make sure they make it up that hill. And so that means that you're going to have to climb back down the hill, help that soldier, that Marine that's in need of help, and you're going to have to bring him or her nowadays to the top of that hill. And when everybody is at the top of the hill, then it's completed. And now you're able to graduate. They don't do this as a punishment. They do this to help people understand that when you're called upon to go into battle, you need to be able to depend upon that one who's standing next to you. And if they're not willing to help you in boot camp, they're not going to help you in the midst of battle. So if you want to graduate, you have to understand what the price is. And so they learn that really through humility and service, of being able to do something on behalf of somebody else really is what it takes to be a success. And if you're a success, that is a form of greatness. And that leads me to this man, Naaman. It's interesting to me that as far as the scripture is concerned, we don't read the name of Naaman until we get to 2 Kings chapter 5. And I want us to kind of start there and look together at what is written here. Because Naaman, as we look at the beginning portion of this, has a quest for greatness. And to a certain extent, he's already achieved a certain amount of that. Let's read together, starting with verse 1, 2 Kings 5. It says, Now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and honorable, because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria, 
He was also a mighty man in valor. But he was a leper. And the Syrians had gone out by companies and had brought away captive out of the land of Israel a little maid. And she waited on Naaman's wife. And she said unto her mistress, Would God my Lord were with the prophet that is in Samaria, for he would recover him of his leprosy. And one went in and told his Lord, saying, Thus and thus said the maid that is of the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go, go to, go, and I will send a letter unto the king of Israel. And he departed and took with him ten talents of silver and six thousand pieces of gold and ten changes of raiment. (coughs) Now as we look at this, here's this man, Naaman. He wants to be a mighty man. He wants to be a mighty warrior. And to a certain degree, he's achieved a lot of that as far as his life is concerned. He was highly revered by his countrymen. He was mighty and highly revered by the king, Ben-Hadad. And yet, something was holding him back. He was a leper, and a leper was an outcast. Even though he was able to accomplish great things in battle, even though he was known to his fellow countrymen as a sort of deliverer, he knew that he was only going to be able to go so far because he was a leper and there weren't many people going to have anything to do with him on a personal level because of the leprosy. And so he was constantly fighting against himself to attain higher levels of greatness to try to overcome the leprosy. And even when they had gone out on raids and they brought back this little Israelite maiden, God-fearing young lady, serving the wife of Naaman, and she's the one that began to relate the fact that there was someone who could maybe help Naaman if he were so willing. And I've often wondered, and perhaps you have too, what is there about this man, Naaman? Why all of a sudden do we come across him in Scripture? What is there about him? I was starting to do a little bit of research, and so I went to the historian, Jewish historian, Josephus. So I'm looking in the back through the index. I'm looking for the name of Naaman. Not listed. I said, well, why would Naaman not be listed? I mean, he's kind of a 
central character in a, in a particular account as far as scripture is concerned and certainly had a lot to do as far as the uh, history of Israel was concerned. Why would he not be mentioned? But he's not listed in the index. And Ben-Hadad wasn't mentioned either in the index. So I'm starting to look for other areas that would have maybe a common word or theme that might be able to supply some help in locating something about this man, Naaman. And so I'm, I'm kind of going back and forth. And before I give you the, the rest of that story, I want you to turn back to 1 Kings chapter 22. And go down to verse 34. 1 Kings 22, verse 34. And this is all it says. And a certain man drew a bow at a venture and smote the king of Israel between the joints of the harness. Wherefore he said unto the driver of his chariot, Turn thine hand and carry me out of the hosts, for I am wounded. And as I'm starting to look upon things about uh, King Ahab and some of the other events that are taking place during the course of this battle, I come across an account that Josephus records in accordance with the death of Ahab. And you know who that certain man was in verse 34 in 1 Kings 22 that drew the bow? Naaman. Josephus records in his uh, historical account it was Naaman who drew the bow and fired the shot that eventually took the life of King Ahab. But he's never mentioned by name until we come to 2 Kings chapter 5. And here's a man who continues to search for greatness. Now, you would think that if you were responsible for the death of a king of another nation, that would give itself a certain credence of greatness, and among the Syrians, it did. But he just couldn't overcome the leprosy. Naaman's desire to accomplish the impossible as it's hindered by that leprosy, as he's aided by this maid who wants to send him to one who is going to be able to give him the solution to his problem. And Naaman, as we read a little bit further here in chapter 5 of 2 Kings, as you come down <coughs> to verse 7, It says, it came to pass when the king of Israel had read the letter that he rent his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man doth send unto me to recover a man of his leprosy? Wherefore consider, I pray you, and see how he seeketh a quarrel against me. And it was so when Elisha, the man of God, had heard that the king of Israel had rent his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Wherefore hast thou rent thy clothes? Let him come now to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. 
So Naaman came with his horses and with his chariot and stood at the door of the house of Elisha. Now this is where the whole thing begins to take a turn. Here's a man highly revered by his countrymen. He's highly revered by the king of Syria. And he's reluctantly going to a prophet of another nation who serves another god other than the god he wants to serve. And then as things progress, Naaman is thinking, well, here's going to be something that's going to be great because something's going to happen that's going to cause my leprosy to be cured and it's going to happen in front of all these people and my greatness is going to be secured because somebody's going to do a great act upon me in the presence of all these people. And then the insult of insults. Elisha sends somebody else to go talk to Naaman. Now, you've been in that type of a situation before, but in a different context. You ever gone to a doctor's office and you wanted to talk to the doctor, but they sent a nurse? You know? And I have nothing against nurses. They're wonderful people, and they do their job, and they do it very well. But you want to talk to the doctor. They sent the nurse. Naaman wanted to talk to the prophet. He sent somebody else. This is not going well at all. And Naaman is getting a little upset. And so the word comes from Naaman and the messenger. Go wash in Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. So not only does Elisha care enough to deliver the message, he sends a messenger. And what does he tell him to do? Nothing great. Go dip in the Jordan River seven times. The response of Naaman is, I could go to Syria. And I could dip in the Abana River, which is cleaner, more sparkling, has better uh, presence about it than this Jordan River. Why do I have to go to the Jordan River? Rivers in my home country are just as good and more beautiful and more plentiful. But Naaman was being taught a lesson here. You really want true greatness, Naaman? You're going to meet your match here. Somebody has to come to the aid of Naaman and say, you know, Naaman, if he had given you some great work to do that was going to cause your leprosy to be healed, would you do it? Well, most certainly. Well, then why not just do the simple thing? It's worth a try. I mean, nothing else you've tried has worked, right? And since we're here, you may as well go to the Jordan. It's not that far away. Just go do what you were told to do. And so he goes, again reluctantly, to the Jordan River. 
and he dips himself in the Jordan River seven times. And when he comes up out of that water the seventh time, his skin was as the skin of a child. And he was cleansed and healed of his leprosy. It didn't take a great work as far as what man considers great. It took God. And so Naaman begins to understand, I am in the presence of greatness. Not Elisha. I am in the presence of the God of Israel. And I've come to understand through this that there is no God like him. And so impressed is Naaman. And I never really paid much attention to this before, but as you read on down through chapter 5, following the, the healing of, of Naaman, what does he do? He starts filling bags with dirt. Dirt from Israel. And his thought is, I'm going to take this dirt, I'm going to take as much as I possibly can, and I'm going to take this Israel, Israelite dirt back to Syria, and when I get it there, I'm going to build an altar on the Israelite dirt to the God of Israel, because he'll recognize that. He still didn't fully understand the real greatness of God. But he was in the beginning stages of it. But I want us to think about that. Because there's a lesson for us. Many people today want to do something great as far as their relationship with God is concerned. I've listened to a lot of so-called testimonials of how people came to be saved. And they actually get quite detailed and involved in their descriptions, and it's almost like we're going to play the game, can you top this? Because one person's going to do it and another person's going to have an even greater experience and then another person has an even greater experience when all God asked us to do was just simply obey his word and humble ourselves in obedience and be baptized into the death of Jesus. There's no greatness involved in that. There is humility involved, and see, that's what Naaman had to come to understand. He had to humble himself to do what Elisha, through his messenger, told him to do. And he did it. And he was healed. If we are willing to humble ourselves before our God, 
and just simply do what he has told us to do, it may not be a great work as far as the world is concerned, but it's an obedient work that says, God, I trust you, I believe you, and I'm going to give myself to you. And the rest of it's up to you. And that's what happens. That's why Paul says that when we are baptized into his death, in Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, it's God who performs a spiritual circumcision. The old man is removed. A new man is created and we are raised to walk in a newness of life. We are indwelled by the Spirit. And the significance there is where some people want to say, well, then you're, you know, if you're saved by baptism, you're saved by works. No, baptism is not a work. Baptism is obedience to a command. And in Colossians chapter 2, God's the one doing all the work. We're just simply obeying what God has told us to do. Baptism is not a work unto salvation. It's an act of obedience in humility to what God has called us to do. To be pleasing to him. Why was Jesus baptized? Obviously not for the remission of sins. To fulfill all righteousness. It was the right thing to do because he did it to fulfill the will of the Father. We do what we do because we are told we are going to be baptized for the remission of sins in the name of Jesus Christ. And we shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's a very simple thing. But it's so simple, people don't want to do it. But I'll tell you this for sure this morning. If in any way you remove God from the work of salvation, then you have removed salvation. You just cannot get to point B from point A without God doing the work. It just isn't going to work. Naaman had to learn that in his day. We have many people that still need to learn that in our day. And many, unfortunately, even in the church, want to fight against it. Brethren, we just can't fight against the truth. It's much easier to humble ourselves and just simply do what God has told us to do. We'll be much happier, and we will be walking with God each and every day. That's what we really learn with Naaman. And then we are brought more closely to that understanding through the teachings of the New Testament so that we can understand why Jesus went to that cross. And as Paul would explain in the latter portions of Romans chapter 6, you know, when we are coming to present ourselves to God to confess that Jesus is the Son of the living God and to die to the things of this world and to be buried by faith into the death of Jesus so that we might be raised by God to walk in a newness of life, we just simply do what Jesus did. He was obedient in his death. Through the power of the Father, he was raised from the dead. And when we give ourselves in obedience to God's word, 
as we are buried by faith into that watery grave of baptism, the Lord will raise us up to walk in the newness of life, indwelled by his Spirit, and now walking, as John says in 1 John 1, 7, we are walking in the light, and we have fellowship one with another. Just simple. And God is the maker. God is the provider. Christ has given us his blood. We just simply need to contact it in the way that the Father has said. And we can walk in the presence of our God each and every day. Are you walking in his presence this morning? Have you encountered the true greatness of God? It just takes a simple act of humility in obedience to his gospel call. If you're not walking with him this morning, you have opportunity to put on Jesus in baptism to become that new man that only God can create and start that walk in his presence today. Or if you just need to simply give yourself back to a right way of living, to recommit your path and give yourself back to the Lord in faithful service once again, he is faithful and just to forgive and he desires that you be with him in eternity. He gives you that opportunity this morning. We provide you with that opportunity this morning. If you have reason to respond to our invitation, then we invite you to do that now. As together we stand and as we sing.